Hey, y'all, from NPR, it's been a minute. I'm Sam Sanders. For our deep dive today, we are talking to Carrie Brownstein. You might know her from her starring role in Portlandia, that award-winning show from IFC. Uh, she stars in the show with Fred Armisen. And how would I describe it for folks that haven't watched it? It is this social absurdist comedy that has this weird gooey center at its heart. And it is a perfect send-up of Portland and these archetypes of outlandish hipster characters. Uh, one of the things you might not know about Carrie, though, besides her work on Portlandia, she has won headlined multiple all-female bands, most famously Slater Kinney, which played a big part in the Riot Girl movement. Carrie once had a music blog of her own at NPR Music. Uh, she's also been the executive producer of Portlandia since the very beginning. So we talked about all of that and much more on the eve of Portlandia's last season debuting. Let's get to it. Me and Carrie Brownstein. Enjoy. <laughs> I, I, I overheard while you were getting set up that for this interview, you put your cell phone in airplane mode. That is bold. Why? I could never. No, come on. You're the professional. You got to have 24-hour access. Just in case, because you never know. You never know. Right. But that's part of your DC mentality. Right. Plugged in. You know what, Carrie? What I'm going to do for this interview? Mm-hmm. I'm going to put my phone on airplane mode. I hope you don't suffer withdrawals. <laughs> I probably will. Um, so I got to start out and say, I find myself referencing a certain Portlandia skit all the time whenever people ask me to describe my average workday. I'm always just like, oh, it's like that Portlandia heavy red skit. Hey, did you guys read that thing in the New Yorker last month about how golf is an analogy for marriage? I did. Mm-hmm. I did read that. Do you hear the thing at McSweeney's? Mm. I was comparing CD tracks and album tracks. Did you read that? Yeah. Did you read that thing in Mother Jones about eco chairs and eco ways to sit? I did. Yeah. It's literally all of our editorial meetings, all of our planning meetings, all of our interactions with with like me and the producers. It's just heavy red, heavy red, heavy red, heavy red. It's it's a lot. That's a lot. Yeah. I that definitely stemmed from my own experiences, experiences that still happen all the time. And I catch myself when I use that phrase because there is just an inherent pretentiousness I think to oh yeah <laughs> you know it's it's just so presumptuous and as if we're all supposed to be reading the same things and then putting certain value on a specific publication where you get the information mm-hmm. it's yeah but it's hard not to lead with that because you also don't want to just claim that you you've come up with this on your own you like you know most of us like to cite yeah. The source. I don't know. I mean, it's it's both good and bad. But I am very self-conscious about that phrase as well. And it's also this thing where, like, the have you read culture has led all of us to believe that the universe is waiting to hear what we think. Well, yes, which <laughs> we see on Twitter. That, yeah. You know, there's the source material and then there's, you know, the thousands of comments and ideas and takes. But then you're reading the onus is on the rest of us to read not just the article, but, you know, 5,000 takes on it, which can take up hours of your life. Oh, it's so tiring. It reminds me of what you're talking about of um, the April Fool's Day prank that actually NPR pulled on its uh, audience and readers a couple years ago, which was that they posted an article 
talking about that people don't read anymore. Oh, what, yeah. What yeah. a problem this was. <laughs> and um, if you read, if you actually took the time to get to the bottom of the article, it let you know that this was... It's all an, fake. Yeah, it's fake. <laughs> but many people went right to the comment section to let everyone know that, yes, we do still read. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Speaking of NPR, I got to point out, um, you used to work with us. She wrote for NPR Music for some time. You had a blog called Monitor Mix. How long were you doing that? Uh, I think the years... You know what is so strange is it's Bob Boylan... Yeah. who is, is a very integral part of NPR Music, is sitting across from me right now. Are you serious? He is taping something up here in New York. That's hilarious. I know. He's everywhere. Um, he is everywhere. I'm a big fan of Bob's. Yes, uh, Bob and Boylan and Robin Hilton uh, brought me on the onset, which was maybe that was 2007, and I believe I left in 2010 or 11. So it was, an, it was a long run and very... Fulfilling. I, I loved being able to engage in conversations about music and culture with listeners and readers. And yeah, that was a lot of fun. So uh, you leave NPR Music around 2011. When did you start Portlandia? What year? I believe it was that same year. I okay. think it was, that was a big reason I left. I yeah. really wanted to do all of it. Uh-huh. Uh, but yeah, so it, it ended right around the same time that Portlandia started. Yeah. And now it is the beginning of 2018 and the end of Portlandia is upon us, final season. Mm -hmm. Uh, You've been at this show for seven years. And so you are the executive producer. You've directed the show for some time. Were you always right in charge of it from the start? Like, has your role in the show changed over time? Yes and no. We all went in with a lot of agency, Mm. uh, a lot of creative control, you know, and I, I credit both IFC, who at the time were just starting to get into yeah. uh, original content, and also Broadway Video, who, um, which is Lorne Michaels' um, production company. And I know, didn't th- realize until yesterday that Lorne is a producer of this show. Yeah, he has his he, hands in everything. He does. He is very good at what he does. <laughs> so yeah, we we went in really feeling like we were able to have control over over what we said and Mm. and the tone and the sensibility. And I think because it was an organic extension of a friendship that Fred and I already had, we were doing little videos under the moniker Thunder Ant that were just really silly Mm -hmm. um, sketches, barely a narrative thread in there uh, for for our (laughs) friends and for ourselves. But, you know, no one kind of set this up in a room and said, okay, well, why don't we get Fred Armisen and then we'll get, you know, a counterpart for him, you know. And we were very lucky that, you know, when we pitched it to IFC that because I was an unknown quantity as as an actor, mm-hmm. as a comedic voice. You were a rocker before this. Yeah, you had I, was a band. Pl- I was playing music and I was yeah. doing some writing, mostly essayistic. So, yeah, I mean, I just think we were very fortunate. And then throughout the course of the eight seasons, there was a lot of elasticity, um, a lot of experimentation that we were allowed. Some seasons we decided to make things uh, more narrative and have, you know, season-long arcs. Uh, other seasons, you know, it was just much more atomized with individual sketches. You know, those things are not always allowed uh, on television because, you know, everyone says, well, the audience likes it this way. This is what their assumption is. And we don't want to challenge that. Yeah. Yeah. I love how your show has done such a good job of luring in a very specific audience. You could say an NPR audience and then mocking them for who they are. 
and then finding a way for the audience to be like, yeah, that was hilarious, when it's making fun of them. Like, I'm talking about this skit you have in the new season where you and Fred Armisen play two podcasters who are in a small town interviewing police officers at a police station with, like, the banjoist in the background playing theme music. I want to play a cut of it right here, actually. It's so hilarious. I'm Darren Blum. And I'm Dana Blue. And this is Forgotten America, Rural Footprints. Pretty good little tune right there. <laughs> and this is the two of you in the police station. <laughs> yeah, in the briefing room. <laughs> Sheriff Hicks was visibly upset. You would be too if you had a dead homosexual on your head. Nobody said anything about the victim being gay. Uh, well, did he wear women's clothing? Uh, no. Uh, All of the critiques people have about podcasts no. and in the folks that love them... You guys get at? And it was the first clue we had that the story we were telling was actually interesting. And you present it to a podcast-loving audience, and they're going to love it too? Like, how do you—it's a feat. How do you do that? Well, I think, one, is that Fred and I are coming at this from a place of affection. You know, we are very observational people, and these are— these are the worlds that we know that we travel in and it is a very self-aware and self-parody uh, and self-parodying world you know and i and i think that you know there is so much good intention that comes out of you know the worlds we're depicting so i i think that you know where the audience sees themselves in the show there's two ways i think one is they feel seen and heard they recognize themselves in the depiction but conversely people connect to the show via difference, you know, via the ways our paths are divergent. Mm-hmm. And and even within the disparate, we sense a commonality. You know, I think that there's also people that watch the show that just think, who are these people? Why don't we? <laughs> yeah, you can watch it and see yourself in it, or you can watch it and not see yourself in it, mm-hmm. but be sort of interested in it in the same way that, you know, I can I can watch a television show that does not depict my own life. But if, if you're telling a story and, and it's authentic and it comes from a place of of searching and, and truth-seeking, then, you know, we're all interested. And so that's always been our hope, um, is, is not just to be preaching to the choir, but mm. to just be sort of, a, you know, just making observations about the ways people interact with their community, either in ways that are discordant or, you know, in concert with. What I find quite interesting in this show existing and, and wrapping up right now is that A lot of the show feels like a very particular take and kind of send up of hipster, liberal, West Coast culture, whatever you want to call it. This kind of send up of aspirational liberalism Mm -hmm. at a time when aspirational liberals feel, for many reasons, more, dare I say, sanctimonious and self-righteous than ever. Mm-hmm. And so I think that it is particularly interesting to have the final season of the show come out at a time like right now when the left and certain parts of the left seem to really, really think they've got it all figured out. Yeah, although there's just as many people that are certain that the left doesn't have it figured exactly. out. You know, our, sh- our show has always been an exploration of well-intentioned people who can often go about things in a misguided way. And the fact that the show is kind of culminating at a time when there was a bit of, you know, whiplash after <laughs> the election election last year of Trump and thinking, oh, maybe, you know, we were so 
privileged and had such a, a sense of progress being inevitable that we had overlooked um, certain things. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, I think I think the show in some ways has always kind of tried to get at that yes. question of what are we overlooking? <laughs> with, mm-hmm. this, with this hyper-focus, what void are we leaving in our wake? And uh, so, yeah, I think... Um, it's it's a good time to go out, and I think in some ways a show that started with this thesis of you know the dream is alive, which was you know such a perhaps false idealism, false sense of utopia, the, the dream kind of crumbling is, is not <laughs> is is not the worst way for us to, yeah. to 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 have the final chapter of the show. Time for a quick break. In a second, how Carrie's show Portlandia depicts certain characters and kind of reflects real life. Support comes from HBO's High Maintenance, inspired by the beloved web series. The critically acclaimed show surrounds the life of the guy, the nameless bike-riding weed dealer, who helps his clients deal with whatever life delivers. Each episode features stories that bring vibrant characters, all connected by their pot salesman, to life as the show captures the experience of truly trying to cope. Stream the first season now. New episodes from season two every Friday. Hey, y'all, got a little promotional message here about something that might be in your house right now. Talking about a smart speaker. I know, a lot of you have some. It can be an Alexa, it can be a Google one. I don't know, there's so many these days. Um, Let me tell you something. That smart speaker is good for something other than just checking the weather and spell-checking things for Scrabble. I don't know. Uh, You can actually use your smart speaker to play in PR. You can ask it right now. Try it. To check the news on NPR while you get ready for work or while you're fixing dinner. It is a radio in your house that listens to you. And it makes it even easier than ever to listen to NPR. It's so cool. So tomorrow, uh, as you're getting ready to start your day or end it, whatever, tell your smart speaker to play NPR's It's Been a Minute on NPR One. Then you can hear me and Aunt Betty and more. Thanks. It's funny, I when when we were talking of this, you know, aspirational left, you used the word we a lot. Would you place yourself in the ranks of that aspirational left that you seem to parody in the show? Yeah, I, I don't know exactly. It's hard. That's such a... I mean, yes. And then okay. the, the map of that is, is kind of vague to me at this point. And I think that's why people don't think of our show as mean-spirited or that, mm. you know, the this, this subject matter, people don't feel like targets because they see us as part of the conversation, not coming in from the outside, pointing fingers and saying, oh, what you're doing is so silly. It's more saying, is what we're doing silly? What are the parts of it that actually have meaning and efficacy? Mm-hmm. And what are the parts that feel a little superfluous? Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's it's. I, I find myself when I watch your show, I always think about what it says about Portland, because Portland is a big character in the show as mm-hmm. well as the mm-hmm. characters themselves. And one of the things that I was struck by when I moved there, I, I lived there for about three or four months years ago. Uh, as a black person there, I was struck by how white it was. Mm-hmm. And then I realized that it was white for a reason. Like, oh, yeah. Or, like the state of <laughs> the state of Oregon was established as like a white utopia and they did not allow blacks in there for a long time. Yeah. And so like, I appreciate the way that your show gets at that without, like, beating it over your head. But it is tricky to do something that you guys have done for the last several years without making it feel like you were pointing fingers. Do you ever get hate mail from Portlanders? 
we don't get hate mail. Uh, I wish people were that communicative, you know, and, and that sort of <laughs> honest in their ire. Uh, you know, I, I do think it is a city in conversation with itself. I, I, what I don't, I, I do think that Portlandia has has explored, you know, the category of whiteness and what that, mm. you know, and not as necessarily a racial identity, but this kind of, like you, you're talking about this aspiration that really is kind of a strange, um, you know, it centers whiteness. It, it, you know, it's it's not, it's, it's just kind of this category of privilege that I mm-hmm. think, unfortunately, because of institutionalized racism, you know, people are so, sort of, instead of trying to tear that down, yeah. um, we, by default, people sort of aspire to these categories that are, are actually kind of built on very pernicious yeah. um, systems. And, and a so, very strange version of whiteness that is, in many ways, it looks the part of like, their southern counterparts, yeah, but strips away all the soul of that. Exactly, and I think you know what. What um, I think what frustrates me when, uh, first of all, it makes Portland to this really monolithic place mm-hmm. to to say that people, you know, in Portland don't like the show because actually, the people that don't like the show, I think, are the people who feel um, that they don't like the lens through which. You know, what the, or what Portlandia is saying sort of about <laughs> about privilege, mm-hmm. you know, and I, I do think it lacks um, a little bit of just historical knowledge about the state. It's a weird state, you know, in yeah. 18, 1858 was when that's when state it was the only state entered into the union with a clause <laughs> that yes. ex- excluded African-Americans. <laughs> they basically I mean, said it's just for the whites. Uh, and and. <laughs> and, f- and f- and I just keep that in mind when you yeah. look at the ways that Portland has has grown, because I think, you know, th- then later, like after World War Two and Kaiser brings in, you know, both blacks and whites to help, you know, shipbuilding and whatnot. And then all of a sudden you get this neighborhood Vanport, which is a predominantly African-American neighborhood that was then wiped out in a flood because, the, you know, there's just yeah. so much there is there is such, such an entrenched history um, of racism and um, of a predominant whiteness there that I think what we are trying to do is, yeah, is just kind of have a conversation about what is left when that, you know, what what is kind of the wake of that um, and how do we write it? How do we have a conversation that doesn't exclude, you know, modes of discomfort, but that also doesn't center whiteness. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like it it doesn't, it doesn't make, it it just kind of says, okay, well, here's what we were sort of left with in a place like this, a place that, by the way, ideologically can represent many places in America, many, many neighborhoods, you know, many mindsets. What I love about the show and how it deals with whiteness and this certain kind of Portlandia whiteness is that it is it establishes that kind of whiteness not as default, but as performance. Mm -hmm. I think that so often the way that white people are is the way that we just think people are. Yes. And what your show does very well it says, yeah, this is a this is a type of white, but it is all performative. It is an act. They are trying to do it. So we should not accept this version of whiteness as default. It is as much performance as drag. I think so too. I think that's a, a really interesting and interesting point. And I think sometimes when I think of what why some of the reasons this show feels odd to people, feels weird, is that you have two creators who 
actually don't come from like, okay, so Fred is half Venezuelan and a quarter Korean. Um, huh. I I am queer. I've been out since my yeah. early 20s. So yeah. when, when we're exploring like categories of, you mm-hmm. know, status quo, we're kind of coming at it as people who s- sort of pass in search situations, you uh-huh. know. Yeah. But we're like, we're our version of heteronormativity on the show, which I... I think influences someone who is not heterosexual. Yeah. You know, it's always kind of exploring these categories that that we assume are finite and fixed. Exactly. And, and, and default. Like, yeah, and default, like you said. And we're saying, really? Well, gosh, that seems really strange to to make default this thing that is so inherently flawed and strange and, and fluid. Is so yeah, is so easily you know t- torn apart. And um, and so I think sometimes when people are trying to figure out why the show gets at things in a certain way, I think sometimes people can forget that Fred and I come from places that are not just like the most normal people, quote unquote normal people. Mm-hmm. We're, we're kind of exploring it from the margins a little bit and exploring the ways that we embody privilege or that we pass or that we are able to, you know, perform yeah, like you said, perform whiteness, perform heteronormativity. Um, and we sort of make everyone, we kind of force all of our characters to perform these things ad nauseum until you, you see the absurdity exactly in, in these yeah. categories. Is there a Portlandia for the right? Some kind of satire <laughs> that does for the right what Portlandia does for certain parts of the left? I don't know that there is. Yeah, I... I agree with you. (laughs) Okay. um, That's a really simplistic answer. But I feel like there have been so many opportunities. I mean, there, you know, you look at most mainstream, you know, we're kind of a niche show, but even more mainstream um, television shows, you know, or films, if if it's satirizing or parroting something, it's usually something a little more on the left or just Mm -hmm. left of center. And I don't know what that paucity is on the right where there's just not a lot of satire. You look at the late night shows, they're all pretty left leaning. Uh, I don't know where that that right like Portlandia is, you know, um, comedy, satire, parody that all relies on acknowledging that two things or more can exist at once. Mm -hmm. And if you don't believe that, (laughs) then it's hard to to dissect it and it's hard to make fun of it because you're afraid that by making fun of it you're killing it but mm. really I think you're you're kind of helping it grow and progress and evolve yeah. you know so you and Fred Armisen who we've mentioned is your co-star on Portlandia y'all really trust each other and you guys have worked together for a very long time and you have this friendship and also a working relationship and you've described this relationship before as one of the most intimate, functional, romantic, but non-sexual relationship you've ever had. Mm-hmm. I think I would be remiss if I did not ask you to give our listeners some advice on managing relationships like that in their lives, either professionally <laughs> or personally or both. How do y'all make it work for so long? Oh, boy. Well, um, good question. Lots of pressure. <laughs> you know, I think one thing is... To value, you know, there's so many kinds of relationships, and we are in Western society, we put so much value on this idealized, like romantic relationship. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think for some people, that is the end all. For a lot of people, that is both glorious and also complex. And, you know, we can't get everything from one person. Um, yeah. And I think it's it's good to have 
healthy friendships and relationships with one's family. And also, I think not to completely bifurcate work and pleasure. You know, for again, I mean, I'm lucky that the work I do you know, intersects with with pleasure, intersects with joy. Some people don't have that kind of job. But I think just kind of taking all the things that you aspire to, that you all the growth that you're aiming for as a person, compassion, kindness, openness, and and kind of having that be the container instead of having the category work be the container Mm. or or that life work romance, like all these different things, like trying to put something like sort of bigger. as the the mo you know so if yeah. it's like connection and compassion those are that's i'm going to try to lead with that in all aspects of my life then i think that for me that has allowed my relationship with fred to actually inform a lot of relationships whether it's with my family or with you know colleagues people i interact with on a daily basis um in in romantic relationships which i think i already said but just you know figuring out like how? Why is this thing with Fred so special? It's because I've remained porous and open the whole time, mm. and I've allowed for vulnerability. Yeah. And um, sometimes I, th- you think, oh well, I, vulnerability. That's just something I leave for this one person in my uh-huh. life. That's just for romance. But it's like, you know what? It's nice to go out in the day if you can, and just think, how can I be more, re- you know, receptive in the world? Yeah. Um, period. So I, All period. of the world. Yeah. So yeah. I, I guess that's my ad- advice: is is just you know to think of what works. What is your sort of most fulfilling mode of relating to someone, and how can you sort of expand that out into the world? Yeah, I am always curious when I see successful partnerships, whether in work or in love or whatever. I'm interested in how they fight. How do fights between you and Fred work out? Well, I will say, and I don't think it's uh, selling Fred out to say that he is not good with confrontation. (laughs) (laughs) Um, He would admit that. He hates conflict and he hates confrontation. Do you Um, like it? I don't love it, but I think uh, I've just come up, whether it was through playing in a pretty loud band or just having to... (laughs) having to fight a little harder to make space for myself in the world. I think I'm a little more conflict. um, Just I have comfort with it a little bit or I I see it as useful if it's done kindly um, and productively. So we we, sometimes it's a lot of um, it's kind of an ice out, you know, where you just feel you're like, (laughs) Oh, here come here it comes in. It's like this frost, this like permafrost that's like settling in, mm-hmm. and then we just kind of have to find our way back <laughs> to um, a place of warmth. So yeah, it's not it's not highly contentious. It's not arguing. Yeah, it's like I can feel the frost coming in <laughs> because we haven't been communicating on something, and we're you know we're circumventing one another and just complaining the other to other people, and then usually we kind of slowly come back uh, and work on ways to, th- to thaw it out. Mm-hmm. I actually think it's harder than just to do that than to exactly. just go at it with someone. Oh, I'd rather just yeah. go right, right for it and just <laughs> get it out of the way. Because you know you're going to get to the other side. That's always what I find. So yeah. like the best kinds of fights I've had with people or arguments or disagreements are the ones where you can kind of at the same time laugh because you know it's just almost obligatory that you have to get through this exactly. stuff. You're like, exactly. oh, my God, can we just get to the part where we've made up? Uh-huh. <laughs> you yeah. Because you know you're going to get there. 
Another break right here. We'll be back very soon talking about Carrie's life before Portlandia, going back to her roots in the Riot Girl movement and singing in a punk girl grunge band. Support for this podcast and the following message come from the NPR Wine Club. Discover hand-selected wines from award-winning vineyards around the world. Learn the stories behind each one and enjoy unique bottles inspired by your favorite NPR shows, all with the convenience of home delivery. A special welcome offer includes a bottle of weekend edition Cabernet Sauvignon. If you're 21 years or older, join in the fun at nprwineclub.org. Do you love trivia, puzzles, nerdy games, and humor? What about interviews with actors, musicians, and people from all walks of life? Yeah? Then join me, Ophira Eisenberg, host of NPR's Ask Me Another, every week on the NPR One app and wherever you listen to podcasts. I want to talk a bit about your music. Um, A lot of fans of Portlandia, particularly younger fans of Portlandia, might not have known that you had a whole nother life before that. Uh, and Slater Kenny in Riot Girl music. Like, how would you describe that band, that sound, and the Riot Girl movement for folks that aren't really aware of it at this oh, point? Oh, boy. Okay, we'll see. It's so a big th- question. I know. It's a big Sorry. question. No, no, no. You don't have to apologize. Um, I I should be mad at myself for not having a really pithy, succinct answer for this question <laughs> by now. Let's see. Uh, well, Slater Kinney is a three-person indie rock slash guitar-based band uh, with vocals <laughs> not sprinklings all. of punk and grunge just, i see those words hide you guys a lot punk and grunge two guitars intersecting what kind of made the band interesting is with, without a bass player every it was like a band where everyone was trying to play a lead two vocalists each telling you know their version of a story Then you had a, a very powerful drummer trying to make sense of it all. <laughs> it's making it sound a lot more avant-garde than it was because in some ways um, I, I think that we, we actually have some, some pretty catchy songs. Hell yeah, you do. So the, the, the Riot Girl movement that you um, allude to was a early 90s um, feminist movement that kind of took feminism out of the grips of academia, which is um, where, you know, that was a lot of people's access to it or lack of access to it because it mm-hmm. was kind of esoteric and sort mm-hmm. of put it into a, a populist medium. So sort of married it with with music it was a movement that really aimed to center women's experiences uh, in a very unapologetic way and to bring up the subject of discrimination and exploitation and, and even just taking it where women had often been the subject, especially in the context of rock music. Yeah. You know, women were often um, the, the object, sorry, and, and then this sort of put women as the, you know, unabashed narrator, the unabashed protagonist um, mm-hmm. of their own story um, that actually had a very outsized influence considering pretty kind of how peripheral it was in terms of mainstream music. Mm. And, you know, there were there were Riot Girl meetings where people, um, you know, kind of women-only meetings, people mm-hmm. talking about, you know, experiences of 
sexism, sexual harassment, you know, a, a lot of analogies to, I think, what is going on today. And of course, Riot Girl was a you know, successor of earlier, you know, modes of organizing and definitely, uh, I think, instilled in me a boldness, I think, that I think I has served me well in, in, in my life. Um, so I'm very, very grateful for kind of yeah. coming up through that that movement. Yeah. It's so interesting to think about the trajectory of your career, because when you're making this Riot Girl music with Sleater Kenny, it is taking feminism very seriously. Mm-hmm. And then a show like Portlandia, which you've done for years, is a send-up of things mm-hmm. like feminism. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and mm-hmm. now I hear that you might be back in the studio or touring or playing with the band again at some point. How does your relationship with feminism, will it shift again? Like Riot Girl being very earnest, Portlandia being kind of a send-up of it. Does going back to the band and to the music put you back in that previous mode, or are these both like two sides of the same coin? I think they're two sides of the same coin. I mean, in in terms of my actual politics and being a feminist and wanting to critique and dismantle forms of sexism, I I think that 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 is, I think of that as a a serious undertaking. But I I do think that as a creative person, uh, it is kind of my job to look at phenomena through, you know, with 360 degree view. So, you know, I think it's, as we were talking about earlier, to me, it's just as important when describing something to describe both the ways that uh, a mode of being is, is functional, the way the mode of being is sort of the ways that it succeeds, and also the ways that it it lacks, you know, and so yeah. I think um, something like Portlandia, by I guess sending, uh, you know, sending up certain um, aspects of feminism, it's not sort of undermining its fundamental tenets, but it's saying, you know, all these things are flawed um, because humans are flawed, <laughs> and yeah, you yeah. know, as as we move towards an ideal, which you know, who knows if there's a single one to agree upon. Um, I think it's okay to critique and have conversations about, and I think critique can come in a humorous form. Totally. You've talked before about some of the very process of being in a band and having fans and playing sold-out shows. That gave you anxiety? I've been Mm -hmm. reading over the last few months a lot of folks that are very public. They're stars. They talk about this kind of anxiety that stardom brings. I was reading about Andre 3000 a few weeks ago, and one hmm. of the big reasons that he left the spotlight for so long is because all the fame gave him anxiety. Right. What is up with that? You know, like, <laughs> you chose, in a way, to be famous. How bad was the anxiety? What was the anxiety wrapped up in? And getting back into the band now, will you have to face that again? Right. Well, I think, for me, when I think about, like, these performers that have anxiety I think so much of writing or performing is about finding your way into both into yourself and outside yourself because I think there's a lot of um, introvertedness among creative types and Mm. as you're kind of finding a means of forming connection and with people or finding an audience you sometimes forget that once you get there, you mm-hmm. may uh, feel a little exposed. And I yeah. think um, that sense of exposure 
can really bring on uh, some debilitating anxiety. Uh, I So a couple years ago, um, Slater Kinney actually put out our first record in almost a decade. In 2015, we put out No Cities to Love. And I think um, one thing was just that I had taken the time to reassess and to examine the things that really caused the anxiety. And uh, a lot of it was just the fragmentary nature of touring for me. It had Mm. less to do with sort of being in the public eye because I I feel pretty lucky that I I'm you know I I'm of the world I'm not I'm not operating with a lot of you know zero paparazzi I'm just pretty like <laughs> I have a pretty good level of yeah. like um, fame or whatever you want to call it yeah. kind of low key <laughs> low key <fame. laughs> yeah. um, which is how exactly how I want it um, nice. but so it was more about there's just this lack of stability. And I think um, even though on stage I was doing the exact thing I needed to do, which was sort of reaching out to other people and feeling them return that energy, return that warmth, I also was not at home. My sense of what home was was started to really dissipate. Um, And so, yeah, it's just this lack of stability that caused me a lot of anxiety. I just kind of worked on that. And also I think getting old, for some people getting older – can cause a different set of um, anxieties and stresses, yeah. um, and certainly that's true. But that kind of just fundamental sense of like existential despair that I was kind of falling into a void with no where to land. That oh man, yeah, that that kind of dissipated a little bit. Last question because they're about to kick us out of the studio. Our time is up. Um, but, okay. So we've been talking about Slater Kinney. What else is next for you? Uh, well, I have a pilot that's actually um, based on my book. I put out a memoir called Hunger Makes Me a Modern Girl, which was largely about my experiences in music and Mm -hmm. kind of coming of age as an artist growing up Mm -hmm. in the Pacific Northwest. Hopefully that will become a show and not just a pilot. Um, I'm writing, working on a book of essays that, uh, you know, this has been such a lovely conversation and I'm glad because we've um, kind of landed upon some of the subjects I'll be writing about and have been writing about in in the essays Uh, and so those two things and then the band is kind of back in the studio very slowly I keep um, emphasizing because people get very like just excited that Uh I mean that something's coming out this year it's not (laughs) Um, (laughs) we're very slowly working on um, new music but yeah so a handful of things for sure nice nice well, I would love if it ever falls upon your heart to do so. You and Fred should do a Portlandia farewell live tour, where you're oh like the character the whole time. We actually have thought about that, and what? Um, so I don't know if it'll be a farewell tour, but okay. we would love to. I think there's so many characters uh, who we love, so yeah, we'll uh, we'll definitely consider that, and I okay. think it's already already being considered. Good, good. Well, we've reached the end of our interview. I'll have you know I was able to keep my phone in airplane mode half of the conversation. But then I realized that my producer always texts me live feedback during the, these conversations. So I had to get back on to get her text messages. No, I'm sorry. No judgment. And um, <laughs> you had a harder job than me. And I will, um, yeah, mine is still in airplane mode just, just, so I can, just so I can brag a little bit. You can definitely <laughs> brag about that. I commend um, you. Thank you. Um, all right. Well, really nice to talk to you today. Likewise. That was Carrie Brownstein. I just enjoyed talking with her so much. So warm, so nice. Great conversation. Final season of her show, Portlandia, is on IFC now. 
And this song that you're hearing is off of the Slater Kinney album from 2015 called No Cities to Love. Okay. As always, listeners, you can send me the sound of your voice at any point in the week, any week. Uh, tell me about the best thing that happened to you all week and send it to samsanders at npr.org. want to hear your voice uh, whenever you get some time. Back in your feeds this Friday for our weekly wrap. Talk soon. <laughs> 